Ruby Ryder here. Welcome to Pegging Paradise podcast number 270 on November 26th, 2020, Thanksgiving Day here in the United States, changing the world one ass at a time. My mission here at Pegging Paradise podcasts is first and foremost to spread the word about pegging. I offer you accurate information to dispel the common myths and misconceptions. Basically, I spread the knowledge so that you can get onto the thrill of spreading your cheeks or your partners. Another part of my mission is encouraging you to explore your out-of-the-box sexual interests without shame or embarrassment. Shame is the silent saboteur of sexual satisfaction. Don't let it stop you from delving into the world of pegging and any other consensual safe kink that calls to you. The journey can be exhilarating, breathtaking, and life-changing. If you would like to support this mission, become a patron of my work. All patrons have access to the podcast a day early, as well as a 24-7 chat channel full of pegging aficionados from all over the world. Rewards for the various levels of monthly support include written and audio erotica to titillate and instigate. Click the orange Become a Patron button on my website. You can also make a yearly one-time donation and receive the same benefits as a monthly patron. Just click the blue Donate button. Another way to support my work is by shopping at EnticeMe.com, the little black dress of pleasure products. Head over to EnticeMe and peruse a meticulously curated selection of luxury, body-safe, and non-toxic toys, specifically chosen for your thrills and satisfaction. For free shipping of your entire order, use the coupon code RIDER, that's R-Y-D-E-R. Need help figuring out which pegging equipment is the best choice for you? I offer free equipment phone consultations for customers of EnticeMe, and you'll be supporting my mission of spreading cheeks around the world. So, I waited far too long to get this podcast out into the world, but my intentions are heartfelt nonetheless. This is November, so for me, what that means is it's Movember. And Movember is when I do the fundraiser to raise money to bring awareness of testicular cancer and prostate cancer, and also try and improve the state of men's health all over the world through the organization called Movember. So there's a bunch of stuff I'm going to talk about today. And the following ideas I'm going to talk about and express are really heavily steeped in generalizations about the gender binary. So my apologies to any who may be offended. I totally realize that the gender spectrum is far more complicated and beautifully diverse than what I present here. That said, there are some issues with how society recognizes, treats, rewards, and punishes people based on these gender binary generalizations. And that's what I want to talk about, specifically about the men. Every time I teach a webinar for people who are beginners to pegging, here's how I start. The people attending my webinar have managed to set aside or get beyond the myths, misconceptions, fears, and incorrect assumptions about pegging. So I start the webinar talking about those very things they had to get past to be there, which are considerable. I talk about the concerns separately for givers and receivers. And while givers certainly have their fears about pegging, their concerns are largely about the receiver much of the time. The receiver's sexual orientation takes center stage, of course. Their masculinity or dominance often comes into question as well. Receivers, in contrast, question themselves. They question their own orientation. They fear what their partner is going to think about them. They also fear what their friends would think should they find out that they're interested in pegging. So when I teach, I reference the man box sometimes. And the man box is a name given to a set of characteristics that men are expected to abide by, to display and personify in order to be well thought of and accepted by their male peers. I'll link to the original TED Talk by Tony Porter. It's called A Call to Men. There's also a set of forbidden behaviors that are a part of the man box. Many of the expected and forbidden behaviors that define being a man, according to society, are truly the antithesis of what is required for pegging. Men are expected to be in control, not to be vulnerable, not to allow emotional openness or expression. Being anally penetrated is forbidden, 
as are any and all behaviors, like penetration, that could be categorized as feminine, gay, or bisexual. Any deviation from the rules of the box bring swift repercussions, so men learn to follow the rules. As a man, if you don't fall into the dictated set of characteristics, you get bullied, teased, rejected by other men, mostly, but sometimes women too. Those women who have bought into those rigid gender stereotypes. So you, as a guy, you have to play the game to be accepted, to survive for the most part. So this set of characteristics is not only incredibly limiting, it can be and often is quite harmful and restricting to the relationships men will have in their lives. Harmful to the romantic relationships men have with women, harmful to the relationships they have with their children, restrictive of the depth of the relationships they have with other men and other people in general, restrictive in areas of sexual exploration they will allow themselves. And of course, that's where I come in as a sex educator. We you know a sex educator who believes simply that pleasure is pleasure. Unsurprisingly, the man box is also harmful to men's health, even resulting in a shortening of their lives. I mean, that's a lot of stress. Can you imagine what it would be like to be continually constrained from and trained out of innate emotional connections and expression, never allowed to truly be yourself, being on guard constantly, lest you say something, do something, wear something, or desire something that is forbidden? That's got to be incredibly painful on such a deep level not to mention a fuck ton of pressure. Some men defend the box, partly because that's all they know. That's just what is. Others who see clearly what the box is all about sometimes defend it because the reality that the box effectively and ruthlessly prevents them from being a more complete and unconstrained human being is just too painful to contemplate, much less truly unpack and heal. The older the man is, the more this tends to be the case. There is, of course, a set of expected characteristics for women, too, also toxic to us and those around us. The book Untamed does a fantastic job of detailing those. It's an incredible book, and it's one of many who delve into that subject. And the way those two sets of expectations intersect, the men's and the women's, can end up being this really weird, mutually supportive, toxic house of cards. It's a real complete mess. So I love that people are diving into this because no wonder so many people cannot find happiness in relationships. How can you find happiness with another if you're never allowed to fully be yourself? So today I'm talking about the men, because again, it's the month of November, which means it's Movember time. So here's some things about Movember. They started off raising awareness of testicular and prostate cancer a lot of years ago, and then they branched out into men's health, specifically as well, men's mental health. They really have a clear understanding of the man box and what it does to our men. And how men are dying too young. That's the whole deal. Men are dying too young. They have funded over 1,250 men's health projects globally. And regarding male suicide, which is a really, really sad byproduct of all of this fuckton of pressure, their goal is to reduce male suicide by 25% by the year 2030. Here's something that I'm going to read from their website. We know that on average across the world, men die six years earlier than women. Men are significantly impacted by poor mental health. This is highlighted by the high rates of suicide amongst men. Three out of four suicides are men. The World Health Organization estimates that 510,000 men die from suicide globally each year. That's one every minute. Research also tells us that behavioral trends contribute to poor men's health. Men are often reluctant to openly discuss their health or how they feel about the impact of significant life events. Men are more reluctant to take action when they don't feel physically or mentally well, and men engage in more risky activities that are harmful to their health. These behaviors are strongly linked 
to adherence to some harmful aspects of traditional masculinity. Men often feel pressure to appear strong and stoic, and talking about feeling mentally or physically unwell can be perceived as weakness. By allowing negative and harmful aspects of masculinity to be considered the norm, men feel there's only one way they can be considered manly. So yeah, that's all from the website that I'm going to read you, but it does seem that the effects of the box are really, really far-reaching. So now let me tell you a little bit about how I came to understand what the box is about, kind of, and a little bit of my history. Around 30 years ago, I had a roommate. His name was Frank. Frank loved women, and he truly loved women in a kind of an all-encompassing way, not in a let-me-see-how-many-women-I-can-fuck way that doesn't respect women as people with needs and desires, deserving of honesty and good treatment. Some men like that claim to love women, but really don't. Frank really did love women, and he fucked quite a few of them. (laughs) Somewhere along the line, on his life's journey, though, He developed a remarkable emotional intelligence, an ability to communicate openly, drop that typical male guard, and dive deeper than the vast majority of men I'd met up to that point. After sharing one of those conversations with him, I told Frank that talking with him was like talking with one of my girlfriends, and I marveled at that. He replied that that was a high compliment indeed. Then he said, But you realize that when other guys are around, I change completely, right? I go back to being the other way. And that blew my mind. That was my first introduction, really, that I can recall in my life to the constraints and rules of the man box. Frank had to click back into a carefully constructed version of himself when he was around other men, a version he had developed as a young man and refined over his life. That version followed all the rules of the box for the sake of acceptance. So young men learn very quickly that traits that can be considered feminine, like expressing emotions, bring a heap of trouble, bullying, ostracizing, teasing, so they follow the rules. Because what choice do they have? So yeah, that conversation with Frank was my first real clue about the societal differences of being a man or a woman, and how you were automatically treated differently as a result. So back then, like most women, (laughs) I spent time yearning from the men that I dated to be more like women. I wanted them to open up and be cozy cozy and emotional and talk to me. And, you know, I got varying responses to that from both sides of the coin, actually. Some men laughed at my wanting them to have deep conversations, heartfelt talks, emotional, vulnerable exchanges with them. And they kind of rather staunchly, actually, stated that men were different and I was a fool to want them to be like a woman. And women, on the other hand, they also gave me advice. And interestingly enough, the advice that they gave me kind of supported the status quo. They just kind of said, you know, Enjoy the things about men that they have to offer, but rely on women for those deeper emotional connections, the empathy and the deep conversations. So flash forward to today. These days, men are kind of my area of expertise, especially their asses, (laughs) but also to a certain extent, their emotional struggles, because that overlaps a lot with pegging. And I've taught about pegging for 10 years now. So In a way, thinking back to that conversation with Frank, I would actually like to think I'm a bit like Frank and that I truly love men. Also like Frank and that I have fucked quite a few. (laughs) But another way I like to think that I'm like Frank is because I kind of lean into being their champion. Because when I really sit back and take a look at the whole situation, I can't help but empathize with the rock and hard place kind of hand that men are dealt in life. It sucks. Because of that empathizing, I tend to give them a break while still attempting to hold appropriate boundaries and teach them a bit. The, the intensely constricted set of characteristics of the man box and the resulting behaviors has been called toxic masculinity. Now that term can be defined in various different ways and it's been thrown around a lot in the last few years. And I think it's a good thing that it has, but I believe that while it's a good thing because it brings attention to the issue, 
when I hear it, my immediate knee-jerk reaction is that the person who used that term thinks that men are in the wrong. They're doing something that is harmful to other people, and they're being blamed. They're being blamed for the actual and very realistic far-reaching harm that toxic masculinity type of behaviors result in. But at the same time, here's where I go with that, right? Remember the part about what choice do they have as far as adhering to the rules of the box? Yeah, precisely what choice do men have in this regard? I don't see that they were given a choice. As roughly, I don't know, eight to ten-year-olds is what I'm thinking, but I've read articles that talk about as early as three and four years old. They start being inculcated, just besieged with all of these rules. And here's the point. Even as eight to ten-year-old boys, nobody came up to them and said, so hey, do you want to be in the box or not in the box? Here are all the reasons you might want to choose one or the other. They were never given a choice. That doesn't happen. For most boys, the box is presented as the absolute default. For the vast majority of boys, there is no other choice. It just is. Now, some men eventually discover there are different ways of relating deeper and more satisfying ways of connecting with people in their lives outside of the box. But there's a price to be paid if they choose this path, especially if they are open about choosing this path. If they're not open about choosing this path, they can kind of take on a sort of dual personality, like Frank described, with the safe people who understand they can let the walls down and be who they really are be a full human being with emotions, with openness, with vulnerability. But outside of that safe circle, the walls go right back up and all the rules of the box still apply. These days, here's what it seems like to me. Women seem to be pretty pissed off at men for the most part. And I'm not saying that toxic masculinity doesn't cause a crap load of damage in our society. But here's what I notice, and I've said this before, but certainly... In this podcast, it deserves to be said again. I notice that women are pissed off at men for not having the sensitivities and skills that the men were actively and non-consensually trained out of since they were small boys. What a fucking raw deal, man. Holy crap. So recently, because of Movember, all this was kind of swimming around in my brain and I was planning this podcast and I came across this thread on FetLife. It was posted by a dominant woman. Basically, she was asking why so many self-identified sub-males consider receiving pegging as submission or some kind of service to their pegger. So there's a lot of answers to that question, and there were a lot of answers on that thread, a lot of comments. The thread covered pretty much all of them. The basic response is that it's different for different submissives, of course, and different for different dominants, too. But one comment dove right into that pool that I'd been swimming around in in my head and described it from such a personal perspective that I sat back in amazement. And so I asked this guy permission to share what he wrote. So this is what this man wrote. Like a lot of things, of course, it's going to vary by the person. I know you asked about why so many rather than why all. But I just want to reinforce that point. A lot of men really do see it about their own pleasure, while a lot of men really do see it as an act of submission. As to the why of why some men see it as submissive, that's going to be very complicated. Sometimes, while most people give it lip service and appear to be sincere in understanding it as a reality, I don't think a lot of straight cis people of any gender really understand how very pervasive and how complicated being raised in our society as a man is, or how pervasive the messaging boys get from a very early age, from adult men and women and from their peers, in so many tiny details, that it's simply not acceptable to do anything that is in any way associated with, quote, being a girl, or with, quote, being gay, or how many stupid and non-gendered things get labeled that way. Now, I'm old enough that I don't pretend that the specific details of my own childhood necessarily apply today, but I see absolutely no indication that the same thing isn't still going on, 
It's everywhere. And as a boy who discovered early on that I was, quote, different, and later that I was going to grow up to be gay, I ended up being extremely conscious of that messaging. My peers tended to absorb it all as, quote, how they were supposed to be, and too often to weaponize it as a way of putting others down. But I had to learn to be supremely conscious of it, because I had to learn to pay attention to not giving any sign that, in fact, I was one of those people everyone else was being carefully trained not to be. Everything from how to hold your school books, what angle you're allowed to hold your head, or God's above forbid your wrist, how expressive you were allowed to be with your hands and arms when speaking, what toys and games and interests you were allowed to admit to, what colors you were allowed to like or to wear, what emotions you could show any indication of having, the boundaries of what you could show within your friendships, what music or TV you were allowed to admit to liking, how much time you were allowed to spend alone before it started to look suspicious, though suspicious of what was never quite clear, and so on. Then when puberty hits, what tones of voice you're allowed to have, what physical contact you could have, how you were supposed to feel about your body and those of others, and a million other details. And if you were gay, whether you even understood it or not, learning to take the cues of what parts of people you were supposed to focus on and what parts of people you must avoid being seen noticing at all costs and how to navigate the whole mess of straight dating and social interactions, even if it was a dance you had no interest in. And, while I truly have no idea nor any particular interest in how women are taught to be sexual and have no illusions that it's not its own confusing and conflicting mess, I don't think most women understand at a gut level how little meaningful information men get. It's a huge mishmash of bad information, stupid jokes, peer pressure, innuendo, and a whole society that is more focused on laughing at men who don't have, quote, the right skills and experience than actually giving them any. And the pervasive message is still that being gay is being less than a man and often a lesser human being. If you've internalized things like holding your school books the wrong way or having your fingernails a millimeter too long, quote, meaning you're gay, and that that is bad, it's hardly surprising that something like taking it up the ass gets even more strongly associated with being gay and therefore completely off limits to even consider. Luckily, one way or another, a lot of people manage to chuck a lot of that bullshit but it also means that a lot of unexamined things get hardwired into our worldview, and until we have reason to examine them, they lurk there. And speaking as a man who has both topped and bottomed for anal sex, being penetrated is a significantly different experience than penetrating someone else. It's a much more vulnerable place to be in, whether you enjoy it or not. It can also be a much less localized set of feelings, which often comes as a complete surprise. Even just physically, it's far easier to see getting fucked as giving yourself to or being taken by your partner than it is to feel that way about fucking someone else, even when it's a thoroughly enjoyable thing to engage in. So while each man is going to come at their own feelings about it differently, all that and more is going to be available to be in the mix of how they experience it. Some men will come down on the side of, quote, pleasure is good and this is pleasure. Screw what anyone else thinks about it. Some will come down on the side of, quote, this is only an acceptable thing to want if I assert masculinity and control. Others will come down on the side of, quote, this puts me in a submissive or subservient position, and it's only acceptable if I embrace that and run with it. Some are going to have some sort of lurking sense of, quote, it's not okay for me to want this, so even though I do want it, the only way to deal with that is to push the desire for it onto my partner and make it be about what they want and do it to serve them. 
And of course, some people genuinely feel submissive when they bottom and dominant when they top, so it's unsurprising if that's how it plays out for them, whether it's some nefarious social programming or just how they're naturally and happily wired. And not just for sex, People who have been taught that they're supposed to be dominant find it very freeing to let go and let someone else be in charge, just as many people who have been taught that they're supposed to defer to others find a sense of freedom and a charge to allow themselves to take charge. Also, if we're not careful, we risk programming women to feel that if they're not getting any physical sensations from something, they're not supposed to enjoy doing it at all. That's simply not the case for a lot of people. People are allowed to enjoy doing things because they enjoy doing it. And whether that's from a sense of power and control or an enjoyment of being the one giving their partner the sensation and experiences they enjoy, or even as an I'm happy to do this because it means that another time I get to insist on getting something else that I like. People are allowed to enjoy what they enjoy. So that's the quote. And see why I had to read it to you? (laughs) Because I've talked about this a lot. But hearing it from such a personal perspective and the way that this writer went on and on about all the different things, and and I'm sure that this was just a small selection of things that you had to constantly keep track of to make sure that you were accepted in the man box, in the man box, you guys, holy crap. So he really eloquently expressed what I've been talking about and It's made even more poignant in that he's a gay man who grew up in the box. And yeah, as he noted, the box has probably changed in some ways, but it's still really pervasive, still out there all over the place. So, okay, what do we do about all this? What specifically can men do? Well, you can educate yourselves, read, seek out sources of information, safe groups of other men who are on the same journey. And is it easy? Oh, hell no. But it might just help you to climb out of that box, live longer, live more happily, and pass that gift down to your children and the young people around you, everyone around you. What can women do about this? Once again, educate yourselves. Learn about the ridiculous pressures that men face being in the man box. All of men's pressure valves to vent their pain and frustration have been effectively removed by the dictates of this box. That's why so many die too soon. At least it's a a large factor. So for you women, learn how to support the men in your life to be a full human being. Let go of any expectations that you have about how they should behave as a man. Instead, indeed, treat them as a person. Learn to offer an ear, to ask how they are. Learn to allow and even encourage their softer parts, their tender parts. Learn to love the whole man and stop judging how well they fit in the box. And off on a totally different bizarre tangent here, Is it any real surprise that the vast majority of mass murderers are men when you hear all of this? I mean, what do you do with all that emotion that has no place to go? Since 1982, an astonishing 113 mass shootings have been carried out in the United States by male shooters. In contrast, three mass shootings, which are defined as a single attack in a public place in which four or more victims were killed, have been carried out by women. It's not causation by any means. It's correlation, but it's a correlation that certainly deserves to be examined. Because sitting in that box, isolated, which is also encouraged when you're not having a good time as a guy, you isolate, you don't ask for help. No way to vent your emotions, which are being felt just as deeply as women's emotions. Instead, they're denied and suppressed because that's just what you're supposed to do as a man. You don't have any really deep bonds with friends to talk it out with because the box teaches you that. It teaches you to isolate. Got no instinct to ask for help because sadly that too is forbidden. Is it any wonder that men die earlier? Is it any wonder more commit suicide? Here's a really bizarre thing. When I have quoted suicide statistics, 75% of them are men, to a group of bold genders, 
often a man will actually assert that more men die because they are simply better at killing themselves. And this is true, actually. Women try just as often as men try, but the successful attempts are much higher with men. So women try and fail more often. Men are more successful at it. So when I get this response, often the guy will assert it with a sort of a twisted kind of pride. Sort of that male competitive thing. It's like, yeah, that's because we're better at it, right? And the irony here that even with a heartbreaking statistic like this, a man would actually default to responding to me in the hierarchically competitive way the box taught him to, kind of makes me cry just at the thought of it. It's so sad. So here's the deal. Be the change that you want to see in this world. Things can be different. So one of the sources of education that I want to read to you comes from a book written by Mark Green. I've referenced his work before. His last name is spelled G-R-E-E-N-E, and he wrote a book called Remaking Manhood. This one I'm going to read from is just a teaser, and, and it's a little bit of a reading here, but you know what? It's only two chapters, and there's a lot of chapters in this book, and the book isn't very big, but I want to read you these two because it will blow your mind. So the book is called The Little Hashtag Me Too Book for Men. Chapter 13 is called Mapping Our Silence. Author and researcher Niobe Way has this to say about the first rule of the man box. The simple message that to be a man you have to be emotionless, emotionless in the sense of invulnerable, is traumatic. And that leads to essentially everything else. Our dominant culture of manhood is generations old, reaching far back in its scope and scale. It has been internalized by men and women alike, asserting itself almost universally from the earliest moments of our childhood. In her book, When Boys Become Boys, Judy Chu writes about her time embedded in a pre-K classroom. Her research there lasted two years, following a group of children through to the end of their kindergarten year. She tells the story of a four-year-old boy who revealed to her that all of the girls in the class are my friends, but I act as though they aren't, because if Mike, the leader of the boys' club, finds out that I like girls, he'll fire me from his club, and that would be a real bummer because then I won't be in a club. The challenging part of this four-year-old boy's story isn't just that he can't have girls as his friends. That's problematic enough. Eliminating crucial years of learning how to relate and form friendships in authentic and respectful ways across gender. The central issue here is that age four, this little boy is already taking parts of his more authentic relational self and silencing them out of fear of being kicked out of the boys' club. He is tracking and accommodating an alpha boy in a hierarchical structure that he is already accustomed to operating in. And who is the leader of this boys' club? Even into adulthood, we always know who he is. Manbox culture elevates him from an early age winking at his transgressions and, when he goes too far, noting with a shrug that boys will be boys. We grant him the heady and narcotic experience of controlling others in the name of being a leader, but we don't teach him what responsible, inclusive leadership is. And so, he very likely ends up becoming Joe the Bully, attacking and harassing any who challenge his position of dominance. Meanwhile, the boys under his sway suppress their capacity to collaborate, co-create, innovate, empathize, and bridge across differences with the children around them. His message to not talk to the girls is part of the first wave of silencing for very young boys, stripping them of the years of trial and error exploration of expression that is key to learning to relate and connect. In this way, the gulf of difference predicated on our cartoonish gender binaries is introduced and fostered. 
boys' emotional acuity and joyous social natures are falsely gendered as feminine, shamed, and suppressed. Girls are herded toward the garish gender stereotypes of the Disney princess, ironically awaiting a prince who, when he finally arrives, will likely have contempt for them. Our sons and daughters' natural capacities for connection fail to be developed via the relational back and forth by which humans develop nuance. Simplistic limiting rules for performing gender are hammered home, enforcing a gender binary which, above all else, is about silencing our children's natural capacities to connect and relate. Then we declare the resulting dysfunction biological. We say that this is just how boys and girls are hardwired. For men, silence becomes central to our performance of manhood. Silence becomes the strategy by which we protect are hard-won professional and social gains. But it's a strategy that will fail. Our society may have once been a place where men could avoid risking their status by simply staying quiet. But as our 1950s culture of inequality falters, the bullies and the alphas are asserting themselves. Threats of violence and abuse, even at the highest levels of government, have become commonplace. The assault on more civil discourse is growing. Our cultural tipping point on manhood can go either way, toward a culture of equity for all or dramatically away from it. Accordingly, our families and our communities require not silence and survival from us, but our shared risk and leadership. If men, buffered as we are by our relative safety, Remain silent at this crucial point, seeking to avoid conflict with the bullies and demagogues who are rising in this liminal space, something far uglier will take hold. Something that amplifies the man box so dramatically that our families, our security, and everything else we hold dear will be at risk. Chapter 14. Courage. I'm uncomfortable writing this, telling other men to step up. My culture has taught me not to do this, not to have this conversation. If you're a man, you may be uncomfortable reading it. But I can only offer you this. My condemnation of our culture of manhood is not a condemnation of men. I do, however, hold us responsible for our damaging culture of masculinity if we fail to create something better. Collectively, men still have a simple but important lesson to learn. Some of us learn this lesson at great cost, after a crisis of our own making, the loss of our careers or the collapse of our marriages. It's a lesson reflected in the voices of broken men at AA meetings. It's visible there in the shining eyes of fathers cradling their newborn children. It's a lesson reflected in the ancient philosophies and religions of the world. The lesson is this. Despite what we have been taught, our power as men does not lie in how well we are able to dominate and control those around us. Our man box culture of competitive dominance is, in fact, a recipe for early stress-related diseases, unhappiness, and violence. It is a direct threat to our families, our society, and our world. Moreover, it is deeply and fundamentally isolating, and isolation is death. Man-box culture conditions men to be change-averse in a world that is fueled by ongoing change. It is a static wall of inertia, slowing the pace of our collective evolution and growth. The world will continue to evolve and grow. The only question is, how much human suffering our own and others, will men create before we evolve too? We can continue to allow man-box culture to dominate us, or we can start fighting for our basic human freedoms. We can start pushing back, making space for a much more diverse range of masculinities, creating more options for how men can live their lives. Millions of men are already doing this work, expanding boundaries and creating more fluid expressions of gender, especially among millennials. Millions of fathers are taking on the role of full-time parents and primary caregivers, 
Homophobia, long used to enforce the man box, is in decline among younger men. As men, we can choose to engage our relational capacities for growing connection and community. When we marshal our courage and step into those socially dynamic spaces, we discover a world that is less predictable and more generative. In the process, we can learn from others how to sit with our uncertainty, embracing it as the natural byproduct of new ideas and processes being born. The courageous choice for men is to lean into our uncertainty against the weaker aspects of our nature that seek predictability and control over evolution and growth. In exploring and engaging uncertainty, we discover the heady awakening of our personal sense of adventure. Know this, pushing back against man-box culture will not get you kicked out of the club. There is no club. Man-box culture is, by definition, isolation. Standing up against man-box culture at the cost of some of our surface-level relationships will open the door to more diverse, creative, and authentic relationships, any one of which is invaluable by comparison. It's well past time to marshal our courage and choose connection. It's time to create something better. So those two chapters are a teaser, clearly. This is an incredible book. And this book is only, how many pages is this book? Let me look here. It's 74 pages. And in those 74 pages, this author so succinctly condenses this down and puts it right out there in front of you in such an understandable way that it really blew my mind. And it's blown a lot of people's minds. Mark Green has also written about how to raise children without all of this crap, okay? And I'm gonna have to find the name of that book and I'll put that in the link as well. Mark Green has done some amazing work. So when I read Mark's stuff, it's like the larger message here is really about diversity to a certain extent, because that masculine, manly man ideal may work for some people, but certainly not all. And so the lack of portrayal of different ways to be as a man is really limiting and ultimately very, very harmful to men's mental health. There are an infinite number of ways to be a man. Some of these involve wearing panties or cross-dressing. Some of these involve anal penetration. Some include being held by a partner while you cry. Some involve wearing a frilly apron and baking cookies. Some involve cooking dinner and taking care of the kids. So let go of those gendered expectations and value humans for their goodness, their integrity, their honest and their kindness, instead of how well they fit into the fucking gender boxes they were born into. Let's let go of all of this shit. So last time when I did this podcast about Movember, I gave you guys just so many links to TED Talks and all kinds of different things because there's a lot of stuff out there. So I have found a bunch of new ones, but I'm going to include all of them, (laughs) the ones from last year and the new ones. And I'll mark which ones are repeats for you guys who really dove into the stuff that I offered you last year. Um, Some of the things that are new, let's see here. So I'll give you the link to that little Me Too book for men, uh, the link to A Call to Men, which is Tony Porter, and another YouTube video I found of his called The Roles Men Play. There is a fantastic one I'm going to put up called The Male Identity Crisis, which is by Fraser Smith. Another one called How Do You Stop Men Taking Their Own Lives by Ben Akers. And he created, because of the death of his very best friend, and he had no idea that this was going to happen, his best friend committed suicide. He decided to turn it into something positive, and he made a movie about his friend. It's called Steve. And you can watch it just for a donation of any amount. But he also created talk clubs. It's this thing called Talk Club, and it's men all over the world getting together, and sometimes it's virtual, and sometimes it's in person. Certainly with COVID, it's put a limit on that recently, but they have a Facebook page, a main Facebook page for connecting up with other men. And then a very interesting one by Steph Slack, and 
the name of this is We Need to Talk About Male Suicide. And there was a part of her talk that struck me so much that I transcribed it and I'm going to read it for you here. And this is just a small part of it. Is it just men who are perpetuating these outdated stereotypes of what it means to be a man and making themselves wrong for that? I don't think so. I'd like us to consider what our role is as women. Just last month, I was chatting to a female friend of mine who described the guy she was dating as a sponge and too sensitive because he opened up to her about some of the anxieties he was facing in the relationship and how that was making him feel vulnerable. And I cannot begin to describe the look I see on some women's faces when I speak about how men I know have broken down in tears in front of me. It's somewhere between discomfort and disdain. Men are already making themselves wrong for not living up to these masculine ideals of being strong, dependable, and able to provide for their families. They're already shaming themselves for that. Are we compounding the problem by making men wrong and shaming them for demonstrating those open and vulnerable behaviors that we say we want them to show us? Yes, that is right to the heart of things here from the woman's point of view. And let's see, here's another one called Why Big Boys Don't Cry, and that talk is by Gareth Griffith. Here's a quote from that talk. That whole idea of not talking about suffering is actually a reasonable coping mechanism until it's not. Until you go past this tipping point and you are in crisis. And then it is the worst thing that you could have done because you have no way of articulating to anyone outside of that that you were in that zone. Talking is our early warning mechanism for these cases. Being stoic and saying we are fine when we are not forces coping into this false binary of coping totally fine and feeling the worst we've ever felt. And then I have a link for you on that book, When Boys Become Boys by Judy Chu. And here's a little bit about her book. Based on a two-year study that followed boys from pre-kindergarten through first grade, When Boys Become Boys offers a new way of thinking about boys' development. Through focusing on a critical moment of transition in boys' lives, Judy Chu reveals boys' early ability to be emotionally perceptive, articulate, and responsive in their relationships, and how these, quote, feminine qualities become less apparent as boys learn to prove that they are boys, primarily by showing that they are not girls. Chu finds that behaviors typically viewed as, quote, natural for boys reflect an adaptation to cultures that require boys to be stoic, competitive, and aggressive if they are to be accepted as real boys. Yet even as boys begin to reap the social benefits of aligning with norms of masculine behavior, they pay a psychological and relational price for renouncing parts of their humanity. Chu documents boys' perceptions of the obstacles they face and the pressures they feel to conform, showing that compliance with rules of masculinity is neither automatic nor inevitable. This accessible and engaging book provides insight into ways in which adults can foster boys' healthy resistance and help them to access a broader range of options as they seek to connect with others while remaining true to themselves. When you look at infant studies, which show that boys and girls both seek connection to other people, and then at these later reports, when they get to adolescence, where boys are reporting fewer close relationships, lower levels of intimacy within their close relationships, then that kind of suggests that for boys, their socialization and development are associated with a move out of relationships. They start out wanting and thriving in relationships, And then they are moved away from those protective relationships. And there's a cost. So part of me feels like this is a bit of a mishmash of ideas. I hope that some of them resonate with you. I hope it's a little more coherent than it feels on this end of things recording it. All of this stuff is stuff I have come across dealing with the whole emotional openness required to actually receive anal penetration involved with pegging. This connection 
has led me down this path of really examining this quite closely. But I also remember, and I talked about this on the previous podcast a year ago, coming across a book that talked about, and I put a link to that book because I found it. It's quite dated at this point, but I believe it's called The Men We Never Knew. And in this one particular part of the book, the author talks about how So women are given, as she termed it, carte blanche with our emotions. We can be emotional anytime we want. Well, okay, there's a movement now wanting men to be more emotional, wanting them to be more sensitive. Okay, so here's the reality of it, though, that when they actually do that, women do not have the skills to deal with it. What do I mean by that? And I I had this happen to myself one time. What I mean by that is men have been conditioned to set aside their own emotions and hold space for women when women are having emotions. Okay, what about the reverse? Women, interestingly enough, rarely have the skills to set aside their own emotions and hold space for the guys. So back to the very beginning when I talked about my beginner's webinars and I teach about that possible emotional reaction Remember the emotional reaction that sometimes happens when you get prostate stimulation. I've talked about it a fair amount on the podcast. And I'll tell the story one more time. (laughs) Okay. Because I've told this story so much. But you know, it's so applicable here. Is that when I was exploring internal stimulation, internal clitoral stimulation, uh, I was really kind of unimpressed until I had a lover who was a geek. He researched how to do that kind of stimulation online. He brings these skills to bed. And we used to meet for hot hotel sex. And we'd already, you know, these 24-hour things where we would just get all we could get of each other. And we'd already had sex a few times. I was very relaxed. He starts doing this internal stimulation and it's feeling good. It's feeling really, really good. And then all of a sudden, boom, I am in tears. It came as a complete surprise to me and certainly to him. He responded perfectly. He saw what was happening. He stopped what he was doing. He came up to the top of the bed, took me into his arms and said, just let it out, honey. And so he made it safe to have those emotions. See, he set his own emotions about anything that was happening aside, and he held space for mine. So the end of that story is, I cried for a little bit, and when I stopped, he said, whoa, what was that? And I said, I don't know. And then I researched it, and I found out by reading a book called Female Ejaculation in the G-Spot that it is not unusual when women are stimulated in that typical G-Spot manner that they have an emotional reaction. About a third of the women do. So this template that I just explained to you can directly be applied to prostate stimulation. And when I teach the class, the reason I teach the class and I emphasize this so very much is because, okay, you've got a situation where the genders are reversed here And it's even more critical that, first of all, the giver responds well. And I admonish the givers, the women out there, do not make this all about you. If you see your partner upset and welling up with emotion and maybe even crying, don't make it all about you and do this weird thing where you're going, oh my God, you're crying. What did I do? How can I help you? Oh my God. No. Do what that guy did for me. Respond well. Hold space. Because you have someone at their most vulnerable and most tender. And it's not about you in that moment. It's about them. And it's even more important that you hold that space because as men, they've been raised not to have that excess emotion, not to let it show certainly, and above all, never to have tears in front of someone. So it's critical that you hold space when that happens, if it happens, And allow that man to be more of a full, expressive, open, vulnerable human being. That's the important part. So that's why all of this intersects so much. And then just taking a larger look at it and realizing that all the pressures that are put on men in this way with the man box and in connection with the suicide. Yeah. So that's what Movember is for me this year. And I'm recording this the day before Thanksgiving. It'll be released tomorrow. 
I'm going to end this with all the things I'm grateful for because I have so much that I'm grateful for right now, even with COVID, you know, and I know there's people out there who are really suffering. There's people who don't have enough to eat. I just listened to a podcast about people who are lining up for blocks and blocks and blocks at food banks. Part of the reason they're lining up so much is because they're in need, clearly, but also because a lot of food banks have closed. Why have they closed? Because seniors used to staff them. And with COVID, seniors are not staffing them anymore. So this one particular place in Brooklyn, they went there and visited and talked to the guy who runs it, who, by the way, had five successful businesses. He sold them all, and now he runs this food bank. It's an amazing gift to society, goodness sakes. And so they're running off a private grant. This is not city funds or anything. And they're feeding as many people as they can, as quickly as they can, as efficiently as they can. So they talk to a whole bunch of people in line and, wow, there are people who just simply don't have enough to eat. So all of this stuff is happening right now in the world. There are some really, really difficult things that people are going through. And when I really open myself up to all of that, it's hard because... When you talk about people who are empaths that can sort of feel other people's feelings, it's almost like I feel like in the world right now, there's so much really difficult things that we're all going through. Even if we're here, we have enough to eat, we're safe, we're warm, and we have enough money to do what we need to do, still there's all of these things that we were used to enjoying, the, the things that we used to do for joy in our lives that we're not able to do right now. So amidst all of this, if, the, if you're an empath, it's almost as if it feels like the whole world is a little unhappy and that casts this sort of cloud over everything. So the challenge, of course, is to find those moments of happiness. And I'll tell you right now, I'll be totally, totally upfront with the numbers. I had gotten in my exercising and my my uh, striving towards being healthy and going to the gym all the time and dieting. I had gotten down 187 pounds, man. I was a lean and mean machine. I totally was, at least as far as compared to years and years of not being a lean and mean machine. I was feeling really good. And then COVID hits, right? So I was 187. What am I now? I am 205. Holy crap. And on the other hand, food is a bit of a joy right now, right? And I'm trying really hard not to give myself a hard time about it because we all go through stages. We all go through difficult times. And this is indeed a difficult time for a lot of us. With all of this happening in the world, added on to the pressure that men face, I can only imagine there's a bunch of you out there that are really struggling inside yourselves Please try to take care of yourself in whatever way you can. Please reach out to people if you need help. Take a deep breath and tell someone you really need to talk. Ask for help. Because human connection is so important to everyone. Isolating is not healthy. There are people in your life who will help you. If you don't think there are, then call some of the numbers that I have put at the bottom of the podcast here with the links and everything. Please take good care of yourselves. It's so, so important. Okay, so after all that, what am I grateful for? Goodness, I'm grateful that I get to live in an incredibly beautiful place. I love my home. I love my pod, my housemates, my daughter and her boyfriend. They're phenomenal people. They really are. One, I'm quite proud to have raised to be phenomenal. And the other, she chose, and he's phenomenal too. It's really quite extraordinary. I'm grateful for all the plenty that I have the things that I have, the money that I have to do things, the toys that I have, (laughs) the ability that I have to make a significant amount of my income from teaching about my favorite, favorite subject. I'm grateful that there are so many people interested in this subject and willing to come to these webinars, willing to support me as patrons, willing to buy toys that I get commissioned from. I am grateful that they have managed to get past those initial fears and misconceptions that they have the courage to take that step across the line and explore, you know, totally. Oh, and then every Thanksgiving, I say I'm grateful for the toy makers because, hey, where would we be without them? I'm grateful for the lube makers, the harness makers, right? 
You guys are amazing. Your creativity and design skills and all this stuff blows my mind constantly. Um, what else am I grateful for? I'm grateful for my new teeth. Yay, the ones I got down in Mexico. That sounds so bad. It's like it's like I went to a store and said, hey, I'd like those teeth sitting on the on the shelf over there. <laughs> it's, it's totally different, totally different. And you guys have heard a little bit about it. Yes, the final teeth are in and they're wonderful and they're comfortable and they're awesome. And I'm so glad that I did it. Uh, what else am I thankful for? I am thankful that I have a new tattoo. You've heard a little bit about this, and it is on my left outer thigh. It is quite big. It is about 10 inches high, and I've named her. Her name is Veronica. I was laying there getting the second half of that tattoo, which was much less painful than the first one, and it just came to me, and it's sort of like, yeah, okay, this is Veronica. Because I was thinking, what am I going to name this tattoo? Or will I name it? I already knew that it was female. In fact, I asked her to put a few eyelashes on the eye. They're not blatant, but you can see if you really look. And it was almost as if someone shouted that name to me, Veronica. So Veronica is here to accompany me in my journey through life, apparently. And I'm thrilled to have her. I think that she and I will have future conversations. <laughs> about whatever it is that I need to talk to my tattoo about. <laughs> my dragon. I have a dragon on the side of my leg. Holy crap. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a new thing. You know, I walk by a mirror naked and I look over and go, whoa, because <laughs> I'm not used to seeing it, right? So what else am I grateful for? I'm grateful that I have a, a writer's retreat scheduled where I'm going to be diving into chapters of my book. I'm going to be writing some more erotic stories that I'm going to post up for those of you who have been waiting a long time for more erotic stories. And I'm grateful that in general, this country seems to be headed back towards a direction of healing and togetherness and community and hope. Very much. I'm grateful for that. Very much. And so I'm going to leave it there. And one more thing. Entice Me is having a sale. Tiffany is offering an early access to the Black Friday Small Business Saturday 20% off sale. So uh, there's a link for that in the Linkorama. And the special code for that 20% off is there as well. So if you want to go shop over at Entice Me, now is the time to do it. You rarely see 20% off. <laughs> so have fun doing some shopping for Christmas, for your fun times, your sexy times, and get early access to that sale so that you have access to things that are still in stock. There are already some things that are back-ordered. I know we got an email from Aslan Harnesses saying that they were pretty well backed up, at least a couple of weeks. So probably not an Aslan harness for Christmas time. And the other thing that is on back order is that beautiful new toy, my favorite favorite, the Strap-On-Me Bendable Vibrating Double. Ooh, yeah, those sold like hotcakes. I'm hoping we get them back in in time for Christmas for those of you who were thinking that that might be a lovely gift for your wonderful giver. Okay. So last but far, far from least, I am going to ask you, beseech you, for donations to Movember. You will find those links on the show notes in the Linkorama. And any amount that you can offer, that you can contribute, will be very, very much appreciated. I'm not anywhere near my $1,000 goal, I gotta tell you. <laughs> And I have been doing a fair amount of miles, but not enough every day, not keeping quite up with the two miles a day thing that I said I was going to do. So, you know, that part I'm going to have to catch up on for sure. But any kind of contribution you can make, this organization does amazing work. And I would really appreciate you sending anything if you have it to give. And if you don't, no guilt, people, no guilt. We all do what we can, absolutely. Have a lovely holiday weekend. Pegging Paradise is where you can find my blog, my podcasts, and my erotica. Pegging 101 offers informational pegging articles only with no kink attached. 
My podcasts are available through any of your favorite podcast downloader apps. You can also stream it directly from my website. The follow tab has links for you to subscribe to my blog. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, FetLife, MeWe, Reddit, and Please Me. When you order exciting new toys from Entice Me, please remember to use that coupon code WRITER for free shipping. Send your questions to ruby at peggingparadise.com. No question is too constricted, too constrained, or too contrarian. My listeners are going to learn along with you, so don't hesitate. Throw those questions in my mailbox or record your question on the voice app of your phone and send it to me and I'll play it on the podcast. Thank you all so much for downloading and listening. You rock. Happy pegging and no shame.